Kids, it is now your time to follow Mr. Trevor and Mrs. Heather. They're back there waving. So if you'd like to go to Kids Church, you can do that. And you're going to have a wonderful time with them. Uh, it is so good to see some new faces today. And if I haven't met you yet, my name is David Rudy. I'm the pastor here. I'd love to talk with you after the service and catch you there. That would be great. So please Please don't run off too fast. You'll find that a lot of people here want to talk to you. We have a friendly church. So, uh, so this, is, this is great. But take your Bible and turn with me to the book of James. Switching it up, all right? We've been in Psalms for a while, all summer long. And we're starting our new series now in James. This is a small book right after the book of Hebrews. It's just a few books away from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And I have probably taught through James more than almost any other book of the Bible. I was thinking about that. I've, I've done Bible studies on college campuses with people who don't even know Jesus through the book of James. I've taught this to middle school, high school, and now I'm so excited about teaching it to our church family. Uh, one of the things I love about this letter is that you can never get enough of it. All right? You really can never get enough of the message, no matter where you're at in life, whether you've been a Christian for 40 years. Maybe you're a new Christian, or maybe you're a follower of Jesus who's gotten off track for a little while. You're getting back on track today. It doesn't matter if you're a mom, a student, a young man. Every single person from every walk of life needs to hear this timeless message. The message that the entire book of James gives us is vital for every single one of us. We're calling this series Faith Does. And the reason why this book is so relevant to every single one of us is that it reminds us of how to genuinely live your faith. It's a reminder. And most likely this is the earliest book that was written in the New Testament. Maybe the Gospel of Mark was written before James. Probably not, but it's, possible, it's a possibility. But this letter was written to a group of people who, who, would, who were following Jesus, who would have called themselves followers of the way. Okay, this was written before the, the name Christian was even coined. And most likely this was written when Saul was persecuting the Christians, the followers of Jesus who were in Jerusalem. And this has a very unique concept. That is, it is a constant reminder to us about this, this one specific thing. And the way Paul actually talks about it later on, after he changes his name from Saul to Paul, and he quits persecuting the church, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he talks about this concept this way. In Romans 6, verse 1, he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, no, may it never be. God forbid that we do that. And he goes on to continue to say that we are to walk in newness of life. And this is where we get the core message, the overall message of James. It's faith without works is dead. If you're alive in Christ, you should be doing something about it. But we need that reminder because we can easily forget the fact that we've been, we've been given a gift our sins are forgiven, we're good now, and we can easily kind of morph into this, this mentality where we just drift back into our old ways because Jesus took care of it all. This is exactly why you can never get enough of this book. We all need to be reminded of what it looks like to live differently and to live boldly for the glory of God. 
And I think a lot of people, when they look at Christians, they see what I would call, and I'm going to be calling this maybe on and off throughout the series, but they see a low-fidelity broadcast of the Christian faith. A low-fidelity broadcast. Maybe you don't know what I, I mean when I say that. I'm talking about a bad recording, like with poor quality. Does anybody ever remember listening to music on the radio? Does anybody, does anybody still do that? Okay, yeah, all right, all right. Great, I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, I got my driver's license when I was 16 in the year 2000, okay? Back then, the music quality that we, that we dealt with was nothing like today, all right? Apple Music, Spotify wasn't around, vinyls hadn't made a comeback yet. And to really get a good quality, high fidelity sound out of your car, you had to do some work. Does anybody remember this? I mean, people who were older than me, you had to install some speakers, a sound system, get that bass in there. You had to like definitely fine tune it and do a lot of extra work because the, the standard that just came with your car, and dialing the knob and getting, the, getting that right fuzziness out of there, it was really hard to hear all the instruments. It was a low fidelity broadcast and that's the way a lot of Christians, honestly, and this is sad to say, but a lot of Christians, they broadcast a quality and a sound that is pretty far off from the original recording. Jesus Christ is the original. He is, he is the one who we are to emulate. And we have to get as close to him as possible. So if you aren't living differently and standing out in the world today, you are broadcasting a faith with low fidelity. We all have one life to live. And every message in this series for the next 10 weeks is about how you can live your life in a particular way with your faith where there's a distinction. It's, it's not just a faith, it's a profession of faith. It's a faith that is alive, it's a faith that is genuine, and it's a faith that works. Faith that works. So, you're going to have to answer this question before the day is over. Are you sleepwalking with a profession of faith that doesn't even do justice to the authentic, true Jesus? James is going to go into detail about how you can pump out quality, genuine music with your life and get as close to the original as you can get. Because Jesus Christ is the model. He is the original. He is what we're trying to emulate. And there are a lot of things that can creep into our lives that give a distorted representation of our Savior. But to begin with, let's meet the man who wrote this letter. Because if we get to know James a little bit, we're going to get a lot better understanding of living beyond a profession to the point that we are living our faith out loud. So James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And we're going to stop right there. I know we don't have a lot to go on so far with James. There's a few different James in the New Testament, all right? Uh, but the one that we have here that introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can easily, without a doubt, narrow it down to James, the brother of Jesus. Most people call him the half-brother of Jesus. You can do that if you want. But to me, that just clouds the relationship that James really had with Jesus. He's only a half-brother because Jesus uh, was not born of Joseph, okay? Both James and Jesus had the exact same mom. They were both born from Mary. They both had the same earthly father in Joseph. But Jesus was the son of God, and, and he had a different heavenly father. Now, 
James is a very interesting and intriguing character in the New Testament because we know a lot about him. The Bible reveals so much about him, almost more than, than Mary. So let's see what Scripture says about him. And the first time we hear about him is in Mark 3. And in Mark 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Of course, you know the drill by now. The Pharisees see this. They're not happy. They immediately take counsel with the Herodians to try to trap Jesus and crush Jesus. They're, they're just ticked off about this. And in the process, Jesus goes up to a mountain. And this is where Jesus calls his 12 apostles. And a crowd is gathered. In Mark 3, verse 21, it says this. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So do you see what's going on here? Jesus is starting his earthly ministry, and Jesus' own family, his brothers and sisters are like, hey, you know what, Jesus, get over here, come over here. Like They're trying to pull Jesus away, and they're saying, don't listen to him. He's a little crazy right now. He's not making a whole lot of sense right now. They did not believe. Then in John 7, we're given another interaction with Jesus and his brothers. John 7, verses 3 through 5. This is where it says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Unless you think they were encouraging Jesus to step up and step out and get out there, John says this in the very next phrase, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is, a, this is where we get the first hint of James's sarcasm, which you're going to see in full force as we get into this book. But this is brother on brother saying, hey, look, Jesus, if you want to get a name and if you want to get big, what are you doing these C-rate uh, gigs for? All right, get out of Spartanburg and go do something in Atlanta, and then you can get into the big lights and move on to Jerusalem at some point. They're saying, hey, if you want to be known, get yourself out there and quit doing this stuff in secret. James did not believe in Jesus. You see it again when Jesus healed the person who was lowered through the roof. It was the same thing. There was James and his other brothers mocking Jesus, denying that Jesus was the Son of God, he did not believe in Jesus Christ. He would have learned carpentry from his father Joseph, just like Jesus. He knows Jesus as well as anyone. But during the entirety of his earthly ministry, James was a skeptic and a critic. And he mocked Jesus and he openly apologized for Jesus throughout the Gospels. But the next thing we know, in the book of Acts, Acts 12... Uh, there's an angel that rescues Peter from jail. Peter gets out of jail. He goes to his life group. He goes and visits this house. Rhoda answers the door. And he's like, tell James and tell the rest of the church that I'm free. And then in Acts 15, in and there's this Jerusalem council. When the leaders of the church are trying to articulate the gospel and work out what they need to do with the Gentiles who turn to God. It's James who answers in response to Peter this agreement that, the new Christians, they don't need to trouble themselves with the old Jewish ceremonial law. And then in Galatians 2, you see that James is a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. So what happened? How did this guy go, in, go from being a mock, mocking scorner of his own brother to the leader of the church in Jerusalem? What on earth happened? How do we connect these dots? He had a radical change of identity. 
Well, I left out the key ingredient, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I'm going to read seven verses, 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to read these with me and see if you can find out what happened to James. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles." So for those of you who have a brother, can you just picture this, right? Brother to brother. Isn't this not just the biggest I told you so ever that, that Jesus has with him? My whole life, you've lived with me. You didn't think, you thought I was crazy. I died, I was buried, and I've risen again. Didn't you wonder all these years why I didn't look like dad at all? Come on, man. <laughs> I'm sure Jesus had fun with that one. The only thing that changed James, though, think about this in a serious sense, from being a cocky punk brother to a humble servant who got the nickname Old Camel Knees because, he, because church tradition says he spent so, many, so much time, so many days just on his knees in prayer that he got really big calluses on his knees. The only thing that changed him from being an embarrassed realist to a man who the historian Josephus tells us was thrown from the roof of the temple, then stoned, and then he still lived through that, and then a man came and beat him to death with a club. This is what happened to James. The only way that he changed, the thing that completely changed his life, was watching his brother die and come back to life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it took for this skeptic to become the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. And this is the first point today. This is probably going to be the only point in this entire series that we get from a little New Testament survey. It doesn't come directly from the text of James. But this sets up the first point that he starts in verse 2. But here's number one. Change your identity to change your activity. James changed when he saw Jesus Christ alive. And the realist, the skeptic, couldn't help but see in front of his very own eyes Jesus Christ alive. And the first practical example of how you can live out a genuine faith that has a true fidelity sound to represent the original is about letting steadfastness have its full effect. It's about being completely different with the way that you look at trials. That's coming. But the life of James is a perfect example of how that's utterly impossible unless you have first been saved by the grace and the mercy of God. The only way you change your identity is through faith. If you have any doubt that Jesus is God, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus died for you, you're lacking this new identity. Salvation is a gift that makes you a new person. And the rest of this book will prove this. The rest of this book will show you how to live differently. I've heard it said this way. Maybe you've heard it said this way before, too. But God is not in the business of tying kites to caterpillars. Has anybody ever heard that saying? It's kind of a crazy saying, right? It's a weird mental image. 
But is what this means is he doesn't change your externals to get you to the place where you can soar. No, he's in the business of metamorphosis. He changes you from the inside out. He will grow new wings out of your back to get you to fly. Out of a new identity comes new activity. There's a man named Robert Woodbury who published a study in the American Political Science Review. And this wasn't one of those fly-by-night social media studies you know, that conveys a predetermined message in a 30-second clip. No, this one is, is serious, if you can't tell by the name, American Political Science Review. Um, this was made over a decade of research published by Cambridge University Press in May 2012. It's called The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And what was the net result that Woodbury found? He said what he found hit him like an atomic bomb. This is not a believer in Jesus Christ. But the conclusion of the study was that the work of missionaries is the single largest determining factor of, a health, of health in a nation. Better economic development, better overall health, lower infant mort mortality rates, lower corruption in the government, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, more robust membership in non-governmental associations. You can just list goes on and on and on. When missionaries enter a culture with the message of Jesus Christ, the culture elevates at every societal level. But it's not just any missionaries. It's Protestant missionaries and what, uh, what Woodbury called conversionary Protestants. It's a title he made up that just means people preaching the message that Jesus will change your life from the inside out. These missionaries that went into all these countries in this study, they were opposed to destructive practices like, you know, drugs and, and substance abuse, but they didn't set, that, set, set out with that in their crosshairs. They uh, weren't political activists at all. Rather, the reform came through the back door. When Robert Woodbury did this study, what he could not believe was that all these positive outcomes that accomplished more than millions of dollars of humanitarian aid and government stimulus, they were simply a byproduct, a secondary result of the main mission of these conversionary Protestants. And this is uh, what he said, and quote, the weirdest thing is they didn't come to change systems, they came to change people. And when they changed the people, the policies changed accidentally. And this is where we say, you're almost right, Robert, <laughs> okay? But it wasn't an accident. Jesus said, if you make the tree good, the fruit will be good. And I'm not saying you don't work on reforming bad policies. There's a place for that. Address systemic corruption when you have the ability to. But the Bible doesn't go after systems. We don't see in Scripture us getting commanded to just go overturn the system. No, it says go after the heart. Before you can truly change activity, the identity has to change. This is why our primary goal as Christians shouldn't be to try to fix America through politics. Right? I mean, you can get the government out of the way as, as much as necessary. Sure, whatever. The more power government has, the more corruption you have. And I'm not trying to make a political statement. That's just an observation throughout history. Some people want less government. Some people want more government. We're not in the business to talk about opinions in that. Um, we don't want to talk about what will happen in the political sphere with individual liberty and the free market. We all have different opinions there. But what we're here to talk about isn't an opinion. And you can't disagree with this. Lasting eternal change happens when a heart finds Jesus Christ. 
That's the difference. And when people see, specifically James, and all of us here, when you see that Jesus died for you, and that he's still alive, that's what changes your identity, and that's what changes everything else about you. Now, I'm over halfway done this morning already, and we've only covered one verse in James 1. That's, that's not a foreshadowing of the way the rest of the series will go. This is very much an introduction. But I want you to hopefully know by this point what we're talking about, who's talking to us, and hopefully you can see what the rest of this series is going to be like. It's going to be about different avenues of life and how we can be different and distinct in a high-fidelity way, specifically now, when it comes to the issue of trials. So look at verses 2 through 4 with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So point two today is rejoice that Jesus will allow you to be tested with dark times. Rejoice that God allows you to be tested with dark times. And if we would have started cold turkey in this passage, I would have just read verse 1 and gone directly into verse 2, this would be a pretty steep mountain to clear. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Really? Count it joy? There's a lot of people who read that. They set it down, they shake their head, and they just walk off. But look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is pretty insane, humanly speaking, to rejoice over a trial. But you can set aside the hurt. If you can do that for a second, just set aside the hurt of the trial. Maybe you're in a trial right now. Maybe you're still dealing with the trial that you've been going through for over a year now. And just think about who he's talking to. James isn't talking to just anybody. He's not talking to Joe Blow. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. And this whole book is written to Christians who have had their life transformed by Jesus Christ. And if you are one of God's children, he has a method to the madness. The testing of your faith, verse 3, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word steadfast there is something that we all admire in others. It's something we all want to have. It's to develop perseverance. Today we would just call this strength. She is a strong woman. That's what we're talking about here. And the question is, how do you become a strong individual who can persevere and remain steadfast when everything else around you is crumbling? To the point that other people can look at you and say, wow, that person is steadfast. They're strong. I'm getting motivation. I'm inspired by that person. The answer is right here. The answer is, you have to believe that God is going to use this. Consider it a pure joy. Trials of various kinds have the potential to either make you run from God or make you run to God. Either one of those things are going to happen. And when you run to God in the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, that's when you become perfect. This word means mature, complete, lacking in nothing. We all know that adversity makes us grow stronger, right? We know that on a certain level. Julie and I are reading a book right now. Um, we get this book recommended to us. It's really a great book. It's called The Whole Brain Child. 
And uh, this book is just about how you can work with your kids on developing both the left, left hand side of the brain and the right hand side of the brain and be a fully integrated person. And this isn't even written from a Christian perspective, as far as I know. But throughout the entire book, it outlines that we can't keep our kids from adversity. Don't do that to your kids. You're, you're actually shortchanging your kids if you keep them from adversity. We all have the desire to keep them out of harm's way. We don't want them to get hurt. But that's life. And if you never allow them to face hardship, to go through a dilemma, you're doing them a disservice. Because part of growing up and being well-balanced is to go through adversity. So as a Christian, if you're going through a trial, you can rejoice that God is allowing you to be tested with dark times because, number one, he's with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And then in 1 Corinthians, we're told that he will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist that temptation. He will provide a way of escape. And then, of course, number three, this trial that you're going through can make you stronger. You see that? If your goal in life is just to make it through life, and just be happy, never have anything bad happen to you, it's going to happen. You're going to set yourself up for disappointment, right? You are. That's not going to work out. But when your identity is changed and you have a new reason to live, there's a totally new motivation that says, my life is not my own. I'm living my life for Jesus. I'm here to show his glory with my life. So I expect to go through dark times. Why would I expect anything different? You're in a sin-cursed world. You're surrounded by sinners. And if you haven't checked, we're not perfect ourselves, right? So we are going to go through dark times. Pain and tribulation will come with the territory. Don't suffocate yourself with false expectations. Don't do that. There's three things that are guaranteed in this life. All right? Death, taxes, and various trials. All right? I thought of that when I was going through this sermon today. Um, if you know Jesus, two of those three things are good. Right? Think about it. Death, taxes, various trials. If you know Jesus, you don't have to fear death. You don't even have to worry about the trial, so to speak. It's hard. I know it's not fun, but you don't have to fear that. And no offense to the IRS, but I have the IRS last on that list if I was going to rank those things, okay? I would put the IRS below death and, 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 and trials because I know what God is doing with that. I know what God is going to do when I do die with my life. I know that sounds crazy, and Ben talked about how we're a weird church. We are weird, all right? Um, if, if you're sitting here saying you'd rather, um, you'd rather die than pay taxes to the IRS, then you probably are a person who's you could call steadfast. But uh, trials are a test. They really are. The first thing they reveal about you is if your faith is genuine or if, you're, if your faith is fake. If it's just a profession. Remember, this entire letter is about living a life of genuine faith out loud, producing a high-fidelity sound that doesn't distort the true love of Jesus Christ. If you run from God when there's conflict, that's a very scary sign. And I love that trials aren't just to toughen us up. There's more to it than that. They are meant to complete us and to mature us into a finely tuned, living, breathing statue of Jesus Christ. 
Here's where this gets really good. We are all completely unique. Every single one of us has gone through different trials. We all have a different story. And God intends to use that for his glory. So what you've gone through is different than what I've gone through. And what the person next to you has gone through is completely different to what the other person down the, the row is going through. We're all in this together, but we all have a different story. And the thing is, God is making a masterpiece out of every single one of us through the adversity. You may not think that the trial that you're going through right now or the trial that you've been struggling with for five years, you may not see any good in it. How could anything good come from this? But God can do something good through that. Have you ever tried just tasting lard on its own? No, I haven't. I haven't either. It sounds really gross to me. But if you put that ingredient with eggs and some sugar and you blend it together and you throw in some more ingredients and you give it the right amount of heat, you can bake a cake out of that, right? And something really good comes out of that. Flour on its own doesn't sound very appealing. I can't imagine just trying to swallow a whole cup of flour. That, that's a bad image as well. Nothing in me wants to do that. But your life isn't a table full of random ingredients that are interdependent of each other. That's not how our life works. Everything that happens to you is an ingredient that serves a purpose that God is putting together to turn you into a British baking show masterpiece. <laughs> Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Maybe you need a pinch more of salt. God is going to bring something in your life in a way that can round you out. This is the way Romans 8 talks about it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you see there that the good in Romans 8.28 isn't just like this American dream of, you know, a nice house, two cars, and two and a half kids and a dog? Like, no, that's not the good there in Romans 8. Verse 29 says the good is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing with all this adversity. All these things will work together for good for those who know God when you allow it to shape you and to conform you into the image of Jesus. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So change your identity to change your activity. Rejoice that God allows you to be tested with dark times. And here's the third point. Expect God to shape you for glowing in the dark. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When you're going through a trial, I know we're talking about, like, you can grow from it. You can grow from it. I don't want you to miss the practical thing here. You have to get on your knees and pray about it. You have to run to him in prayer. And as I said earlier, I've been in this book for, for quite a few years. I'm familiar with the book of James. I love the book of James. Um, one time I had a friend at Starbucks, and he, I worked with him. 
he got fired because he wasn't making his shifts because he was into some things that he shouldn't have been into. And I realized he was picking up his last check, all right? I knew this is probably the last time I'm going to have a chance to talk to him for a really long time, if ever. And God worked it out to where he was walking out of the parking lot the exact same time that I was getting off my shift. And I happened to be going through the book of James at the time. I had already witnessed to him many times before. Actually, another girl that I worked with who was also a Christian kind of like told me, hey, David, heads up, like, Matt's kind of upset that you keep talking about Jesus, so you might want to lay off a little bit. So, like, I knew I had to say something. And I brought up the story of James, the life of James, the man who was a realist, the man who wanted to see it to believe it. His own brother he didn't even trust. But when he saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it changed him. And when you, are, when you are talking to people who are in this book who are raw, they don't know Jesus, I've heard this criticism. Well, if James is writing this book from his pastoral position in Jerusalem to the brothers and the sisters who are scattered and dispersed and on the run, isn't it kind of tone deaf to say, count it all joy? I mean, he seems fine. How can he really get off telling people to rejoice? How can he be so confident that it's all going to work out? Verse 5 shows you this is a man who has confidence. This is a man who would never say something like this unless he had already been at the bottom and he'd already been lifted up by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he's going to say something very bold, very profound. You don't just like say this nonchalantly. If you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to you. It's a fact. There's confidence here. There's authority. This is a strong leader who is calling people to step out and live out their faith out loud. I would say there's an edge that comes to this that would only happen if you love your flock. And think about James's life, okay? All those years, all the way through his 20s, into his early 30s maybe. We don't know exactly when it, how, how much younger he was than Jesus. But he's not supporting Jesus. He's openly mocking Jesus. He's viciously separating himself from Jesus. And then his brother dies, comes back to life, proves him wrong. How would you feel if that was you? I tell you what, I would be a little ashamed. Right? James could have easily lived the rest of his life timid, kind of like, Depressed a little bit, a little, little just ashamed of himself. I can't believe I, I wasted all those years with my, with my brother. And I, I could even see, I, I've seen this happen with, with Christians who profess to be followers of Jesus, who don't have a high fidelity quality to their life, saying things like, oh, there he is, James, the little brother of Jesus. He didn't even recognize the son of God in his own carpentry shop. Look at that guy. What was his problem? Christians can sometimes feel ashamed when they've done the wrong thing for a really long time and they have a hard time getting over that. But seeing your brother resurrected would shake anyone. And he could have lived the rest of his life in guilt. But that's not the James that we see. We see a man who when he lacked wisdom, he got on his knees and he poured out his, his heart to God, to his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a man who knows from experience how the testing of his faith produced steadfastness and that it's from God who gives generously. 
So how did this lifelong mistake up to the resurrection not crush, crush him? It had to have been because of what Jesus said. I know I was joking about what Jesus would have said earlier, but I would love to have just been a fly on the wall when Jesus came to his brother James. I'm alive. I can just see him saying, James, it's okay. Don't be ashamed. Don't, Don't worry about it. It's okay. I forgive you. And what Jesus does when he saves us when he reveals to us who he is, he takes the shame and the guilt that we have and he buries it at the foot of the cross. That's our savior. That's what Jesus did to James. And that's what he does for all of us. He died for my sin, for your sin, for James' sin. Because Jesus rose from the grave, you can bury your shame at the foot of the cross. You don't have to live with guilt Live in freedom that Jesus loves you. He died for you. He saved you. He has a plan for you. He will make you steadfast, complete, lacking in nothing. Don't doubt God. Never doubt him. He he came back to life. He is doing something. Be stable. Be steadfast. Move forward in faith. Faith does something. Doesn't waver doesn't wallow in shame. Faith looks to Jesus Christ and his power through his metamorphosis that he gives you and he gives you wings to soar through life. You realize that, hey, I don't have to just keep twisting the same knob and trying to tweak it to get all the static out. He's going to change me from the inside out. And every single one of us is a mess without Jesus Christ. We are made in the image of God, yes, but we are broken and we are in need of complete restoration. And to be the person that is cranked up to high with the genuine sound of Christ, that doesn't hurt people's ears, a person that is going to glow in the darkest hours, you have to bury your shame and your guilt at the foot of the cross. Jesus didn't beat up James over his mistakes. He took it and he threw it in the depths of the bottomless sea. Jesus died for your sin so that you can have freedom and transformation that changes you from the inside out. And James leads off this letter by saying, here's how you show it. This is the first way to show a genuine faith. We're going to see how you can show it with your money. We're going to see how you can show it with the way you talk, with the words of your mouth. The whole book is practical example after practical example. But this first one, trials, is really the tipping point. It's a big one. You can show that you've been changed from the inside out. You can let steadfastness have its full effect on you. Expect God to shape you into someone who glows in the dark. Worship team, you can come on up right now. And I just want to say, if if you are like James, who you've never really trusted who Jesus is, you don't believe that he is who he says he was, what are you waiting for? The resurrection turned this entire world upside down. Everybody who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ couldn't shake it, and they were never the same. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's what's changed us. We don't have a faith without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I would would challenge you, if you don't know Jesus, and you're a realist just like James was, just do a little research. Just do a little basic research on the history of what happened in that time period, 
and you will see that the Romans who didn't know God, thought Jesus was some crazy person from Nazareth, they couldn't believe how it was turning the world upside down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is truly the pillar of our faith. It changes everything. And it, the burden is on you to investigate that. Because if it is true that Jesus died and he rose again, then you better put your faith in him. You better stop just living your life doing your own thing. And for those of us who do know Jesus Christ, here we are, the Christians who've been in this book, who've memorized this book, the Christians who are just starting out in their faith journey with Jesus Christ, this book is going to show you how you can literally live a genuine faith that represents Jesus Christ well, the way it should. And the first thing is we have to realize these trials, these dark times we go through, they aren't meant to destroy us and to discourage us and for us to be ashamed about them. We are to glow in the dark and shine the light of Jesus even brighter in the dark times. Let's stand up. We're going to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ who changed James, who changes every single one of us and just praise him as we close our service today.